Well, good morning. I'm excited to uh, be able to continue this series, and uh, Lord willing, we'll wrap it up today. Uh, I think I have to. I don't think Brian's going to give me any more uh, Sunday mornings here. Uh, but thank you for the opportunity, Brian. It's been a, a, a privilege for me, and I've, I've uh, enjoyed learning and growing along with this process. So uh, we're going to look at First John again. And once again, let me reiterate that the purpose of this series is also the purpose of 1 John. And that is that you would know that you have eternal life. You can know and be confident that you have eternal life. And that is John's purpose in writing this book. And so it is the purpose of the series uh, is that we as a congregation would have confidence that we would know that we have eternal life. So it may be that as we've gone through this, this series, that you've wrestled with it and that you've struggled with it, and that's okay. Um, but the answer is Jesus. The answer is confession and faith in Jesus, repentance of sin, and an abiding in God's love for you. So we're going to be looking today at our last part of this series. Let me remind you of the verse. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Before we jump in, let's pray together. And would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit who takes your word and causes it to be effective in our life. It applies it to every area of our life. It causes us to not just see uh, areas where we need growth, areas where we need encouragement, But then, Lord, it inclines our hearts to obey you, to love you, to walk with you. Lord, it builds confidence in us as we walk with you and as we fellowship with you and with others who are doing the same. Would you help us this morning as we look at 1 John? I pray that uh, this has been a beneficial study for all of us as we've tried to let 1 John seep into the way we think, the way we act. And Lord, it would even have a transformative effect on this body. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this past week, uh, NASA sent up uh, a rover to Mars. Interesting, right? Here we are, we're in the middle of COVID, and we're going to try to reach Mars. Um, NASA sent up a rover called the Perseverance to Mars, and it's, it's just one step in many to see if there's life on Mars. And so what this rover is going to do when it gets there in about six months, it should be there on February. You could say we're in some type of a space race. I think um, there's some Arab countries who are trying to get there and there's some other countries who are trying to get there first. But there's three in particular that will all arrive in February. And the goal of this rover is to drive around on Mars. Isn't it funny we're talking about this? That a rover is going to be driving around on Mars, controlled by people here. And it's going to drill into the, the ground there. I almost said Earth. It's going to drill into the ground there in, on Mars and uh, take out samples of rock, uh, dirt, and other types of things. And it's going to store them in these tubes. Uh, it's going to drive around. It'll seal those tubes up, and then it'll drive around. It's going to deposit those tubes somewhere for a later mission to come by and pick those up. Okay? Um, and the goal, once again, in, in this series of um, steps that NASA is taking to see if there has ever been past or current life on Mars. Well, we have been attempting something over the last three weeks. And in some ways, it's 
way more significant than going to Mars. And that is we have been examining and seeking for signs of life. Signs of life that are not connected to this earth. So it was interesting as I was reading about this Mars rover, um, that the, the process they have to go through and the difficulty and the steps they have to take in order to store these samples of soil in something that was manufactured on earth and yet be able to test it to see if there's anything like living in it that's not you know, contaminated by earth, by you know, what we do here. And so there's all this process of trying to you know, isolate the, the contaminants and then be able to somehow evaluate the soil. Well, you know what, we, what we've been doing is we've been looking for weighty evidence that there is indeed life that is not from this earth in our very soul. We've been engaging in these three tests. The first test that we engaged in was the test of doctrine, the test of belief. What do you believe about the person of Jesus Christ? It's very important. Then we also, last week, we looked at the test of sin or the test of morality. What do you do? What do you think about? How do you engage with your own sin? It's very important, and it's a test to know if you have life in you. And so today we're going to engage in that third test, the test of love. So review of those three tests. The precondition for knowing you have eternal life is a true confession of Jesus. You can know you have eternal life based on what you think, say, and do concerning sin. And then today we could sum it up this way. You can know you have eternal life if God's love is flowing in and through you to others. Okay? You can know you have eternal life if God's love is flowing in and through you to other people. Now, we've been jumping around to all sorts of different te- texts uh, as we've done this study. Uh, we've been doing a lot of comparisons, and we're not going to do as many comparisons today. In fact, we're going to kind of land in one text primarily. I'm, I will jump around a little bit, but uh, primarily we're going to be in chapter 4, the text that Brian read for us this morning. And we're going to begin in verse 7. So 1 John 4, verse 7. Before we go into the details of this paragraph, I want you to notice verse 7 starts out with a command. Beloved, let us love one another. There are 14 commands in this book. It's kind of interesting that here we are, we're, we're doing all these tests to see if there's life. And yet at the same time, alongside of these tests for life, There are these commands to obey and to walk with Jesus, to abide in him. And 11 of those 14 commands specifically have to do with loving. Whether it's loving God or whether it's loving other people. So even as we approach this test, we need to realize that that this is not a passive test. This is not a test where you lay down and someone comes by and, and taps on your knees to see if you have reflexes. Okay? Yes, there's part of that. There is a test seeking for life, but it's, it's life that actually has to be dispensed by you, and we're commanded to dispense it. But it has its source in God. So let's look here, verses 7, all the way through verse 11 to begin with, because there's these bookends. I want you to see them. Once again, verse 7 begins, beloved, let us love one another. Look at how verse 11 ends. 
beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. There's, there's another command kind of ending this little section. And then verse 12 is this transitional verse to the next paragraph. So let's look at these, this paragraph. Okay? We're going to find in this very first paragraph the source of love and the demonstration of love. Okay? So here we go. The source of love. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. So love is from God. The source of love is God. We will have to define very carefully what love is. And we will do that kind of as we go through this passage. Okay? In that process, though, whatever love is... Whatever we decide is is the definition, we can say this, it is from God. And it's interesting how this works. Look at verse 7 again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So in other words, if someone is loving, then they're connected to God. In other words, the love never ceases to be God's love. Okay? In other words, the source, it's never broken. It's not like God's love, you know, is demonstrated and shown and then left. And then we've got to somehow manufacture and create love on our own to dispense this. It's actually still connected. Love is from God. It comes from God. It's sourced in God. There's no love apart from being sourced in God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. So therefore, if, if you know God, and if you're, you're connected to God, then you have his love. If you don't love, then you must not know God. Because, and he says this at the end of verse 8, God is love. So this love is not just like, it's not just uh, something that God does, it's something that God is. God is love. It's part of his essential nature. God is love. Now, philosophically, some might say love has to be demonstrated or acted upon. Love can't just exist in theory. In fact, if we look back just a few um, pages, maybe verses, depending on where you're at. Chapter 3, verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, love has to be, it's active, it's got to be acted upon. And so, it's interesting that part of God's nature, his essential qualities is that he is love. And I, I, I think this is amazing because I think it points right to the triune God. The eternal God existing forever in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect love for one another. And we get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of that amazing love and relationship. Look back real quickly at chapter 3, verse 11. John has previously anchored or founded this command or our responsibility to love one another in the gospel message. Verse 11, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. Most likely the message that Paul had delivered to the church there at Ephesus. This is the message you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Okay? So the command to love is actually anchored directly into the gospel message, the message concerning Jesus Christ. But here in chapter 4, verse 7, 
John anchors the command to love in the very nature of God. God is the spring of all genuine love, and it is flowing in such a way that it never ceases to be connected to Him. So anyone who loves this way has been born of God and knows God. Now this, this, uh, this last phrase in verse 8, because God is love. Three times, John says some interesting things about God. One in, in the gospel, he says that God is spirit in John chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 1, he says God is light. And then here in 1 John 4, God is love. It's part of his essential nature. You could say that the creation, all of the acts of God, every act of God, flows from his love. So let's talk about this a little bit more. Love is sourced in God. But how do we define it? Can we define it a little bit clear, a little bit more clearly? And I, I believe we can. Okay? John fifteen nineteen suggests that there is a love that the world can have for its own. Okay? The world loves its own, and, and this is a different kind of love than that. In Matthew five forty six, Jesus said, What profit do you have if you love someone who's going to love you back? So there is a, there's this type of, of self-serving love that, that's not what this is talking about. In fact, if I could define it for you, and I think it's a little small for some of you, but love is making self-sacrificing choices for another that are sourced in God and flow through one life into another. There's self-sacrifice involved here, and we're going to see that by, by looking at the, the demonstration of love. Look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Demonstrated, shown among us, okay? That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. God demonstrates His love in the incarnation. Verse 9. God, the Creator, the Supreme Being, came to this earth to live and to dwell among us. God, who is love, took on human form to live among us. That is love demonstrated. Philippians chapter 2, we're told, have this mindset among you that is yours in Christ. And what is it? It's this idea that, that you look for the benefit of other people. You think not on your own things, but you think on the, the things of others. You're not consumed with self, but rather you're looking to the benefit and the need of other people. Jesus demonstrates that in his incarnation. But even, you might say, a a fuller picture, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. He, He quickly makes a little caveat there and he just reminds us that natural fallen humanity does not love God. Okay, we don't. Humanity doesn't just love this idea of a deity, okay? So in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I touched briefly on propitiation last week, but let me, let me expand it just a little bit here. On the great day of atonement in Israel's um, traditions, the high priest would take two goats 
And uh, one of those goats, he, he placed his hands over the goats and kind of symbolizing the, the transfer of all the sins of the people onto this goat. And that goat would then be slaughtered to pay the penalty for sin, which was death, blood spilt. Then he'd take this other goat. Similar way, put his hands over the goat, transferring, as it were, the sins of all the people. And then they'd send this goat out into the wilderness. The idea being that God not only deals with the punishment of our sin, but he also removes it far from him. That's the idea here. Jesus became our propitiation. He paid the penalty, satisfied the demands of the law, the broken, transgressed law of death. Blood must be slain, and Jesus was the lamb who was slain. And then also the picture of our sins being completely removed from God's presence. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. It's a demonstration of God's amazing love. So love is sourced in God, and love is demonstrated by God. Now, why is this so significant? Well, this next verse is kind of a transition verse. And I think this verse kind of transitions us into thinking correctly about the significance of this love. The significance of love being sourced in God and the significance of the demonstration that God gave gave us in his love. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John 1.18 says this. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is the demonstration of God's love. So nobody's ever seen God. But it's interesting, he says this, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. It's kind of a a little bit of an awkward statement. Is is there something missing there? So nobody's ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This verse is a clear testimony to what happens when believers love each other. It demonstrates to others the reality of God in us and his transforming work. John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There are two key words, I think, in this verse, verse 12, and that would be the word abides and the words perfected. In fact, it's interesting. Abides first shows up right here, uh, verse 12, um, in this chapter, okay? But then right after this, it's going to be listed six times in the next paragraph. Perfected also shows up here. It shows up one other time previously in the book, and then it's going to show up three more times in the next paragraph. And those two words, I think, are signal words for us, getting ready to tell us something significant about this next paragraph that we need to take note of. Now... I like the Lord of the Rings. I don't know if I've got any Lord of the Rings fans in here. I like the books, and I also like the movies. And something that's fun about the movies um, is how often they do aerial shots, and then they'll, all of a sudden they'll zoom way into something. It's kind of cool. I don't know if you've ever been to an IMAX or something like that, where you've, you know, you're in a helicopter, 
and all of a sudden the helicopter goes over this cliff, and you're like, whoa, and your stomach just kind of, whoo, goes up, right? Kind of like you're in a, on a roller coaster. I think 1 John is written in a lot of ways, like a plane or a helicopter going over aerial views, and then every now and then it just dips way down, like way down and let you see some of the details that's going on. Some of the details of, of what's going on underneath the ground, what's going on in the heart and the soul of a person. And this next paragraph, I believe, is one of those paragraphs. Where we're going to start at kind of, you know, 11,000 feet. We're going to start way up in the very first few verses of this next paragraph. But then as we go, we're going to go deeper and deeper and zoom all the way down into the human heart and human condition. And we're going to see a transforming work that God is doing in believers' lives. Verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he's given us of a spirit. We've, we've read that before. And we have seen and testified that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. We've seen that before as well. So we're kind of flying over the top again. We've, already, we've seen a lot of this. Matter of fact, we've seen some of this in great detail in previous sections of the book. So here we are, we're flying over it. Verse 15 kind of sums up this, this flyover. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides, here's that word, in him and he in God. Okay, so whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Abiding is a word that's used 41 times in the gospel of John. John loves this word. It's like one of his favorites, okay? It's used 41 times in the gospel. It's used 24 times in this book. A few other times in some of his other books. What he's stressing here is that a genuine believer roots himself into God's love. Dwells in the sphere of that love, remains in it, saturates himself in God's love for him so much that it begins to transform him. Now, I didn't know this, but you know you can actually die from staying in a bathtub too long, okay? So here you are, you're soaking in the bathtub, but if you stay in there too long, now, don't worry, it's like days, okay? So for some of you who are like, oh, But what happens is the water so seeps into your skin and becomes, it begins to break down your skin eventually. You can start getting sores and, and your skin starts to break down. Now, that's a really kind of a gruesome example and a negative example, but here's the, here's the picture here. We're supposed to remain in and stay in something that's supposed to saturate us and begin to so become part of us that, that it flows through us. And this is the idea of abiding in God's love. We're remaining in it. We're abiding in it. We're staying in it. We're absorbed by it. We think about it. We talk about it. We share it with other people because we love God's love for us. And as we stay in it, it begins to flow then out of us to other people. This is what it means to abide, to remain forever staying in God's love as it works its way into your own character. Verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence 
for the day of judgment. Now, let's talk about this word perfected, okay? It shows up a few times in this book. And in fact, some have wrongly interpreted perfected to somehow mean that you can attain perfection. And that, that there is this spiritual plane we can get to where we all are perfect and we love each other perfectly and, and it's, just, it's just perfect. But that's not, what this, that's not what this word is intending to mean. Perfected, the word perfected has this idea that it is reaching its intended goal or its intended target. Okay, so here we go. God's love is not meant only to stick in your heart. It is meant to flow through you and go to somebody else. The intended target of God's love is not just you. It's actually others. It's other believers. Now this is this is really really important, okay? What this means is is that like our worship this morning, I loved it. I loved the songs, I loved singing it. It was great. And you know what made it more meaningful? More meaningful was the fact that I've been spending time worshiping God individually, like personally. Spend time in the Word. Spend time praying. And so then when I come and I, and I see these words and I'm singing them, it's, it's like, yes, this is what I believe. But do you know what makes it even more wonderful? Is when you're with someone else who's doing the same thing personally. And you begin to do it together. And you begin to encourage one another. And you've been talking about the word together. And you've been talking about God's love together. And it becomes this mutual enjoyment and this beautiful thing where God's love is being shared by one another. Then you come to worship and there is joy. Because you are with God's people with whom you've been sharing God's love. And now you are worshiping. We'll come back to that at the very end. Okay? This idea of perfected is that God's love is going to actually reach its intended object, its intended goal. So by this, is, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Now, real quickly, just want to explain this verse to you, okay? The aim of God's love is to actually work in your heart in such a way that you are secure and not afraid of judgment. You're secure and not afraid of judgment. That we may have confidence in the day of judgment. And it's interesting what gives you confidence. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Now, it doesn't say as he was, so are we in this world. It says as he is. And so I think it's actually referring back to the fact that God is love. Okay, so here, God is love. And you know what? When we've been abiding in God and He in us, we love. So what's going to give us confidence when we stand before God is the fact that we have this otherworldly stuff in our soul. And it's the Holy Spirit and it's God's love in us. And it's going to give us confidence in the day of judgment as we stand before Him. Let's continue on because we're going to continue the same concept here. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. There it is again. Okay. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
Fear. It's the idea of alarm or dread or fright. This is different than the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord has the idea of reverence and respect. But this fear, this dread, or even some versions would use the word torment, has the idea of it that you are connected to God's judgment and you are afraid of being judged. And so God's love works in us a confidence for the day of judgment. His perfect love, love that is starting to reach its intended object, the intent of securing the believer and the intent of flowing to other believers, as that happens, it casts out fear. It casts out fear. Because you can't manufacture this. You can't create this yourself. This is God doing it in you. And you can't help but go, this is not of me. Only God could do that. Because you know what? Only God can actually love people who don't like him. It's interesting that the focus of 1 John is that people would, that you would love believers. It doesn't say unbelievers. It says you would love believers. Did you know that you have a hard time loving believers? You have a hard time loving believers. Have you ever noticed that? You know, it's interesting. Sometimes we're, we're like easy and lenient on unbelievers because, well, they don't know better, Right? They don't know better. They don't have the Holy Spirit in them, you know, and, and we just need to be merciful and gracious to them so that they can see that we have the love of God in us and they might hear the gospel and they might be more inclined to the gospel because we've been really kind and loving to them. But then we see our brother or sister who we don't agree with politically. We don't agree with them about the virus thing or race. You know what happens? We close up our hearts. We become judges, James says, with evil thoughts. And we don't love one another. In fact, it's interesting. It's interesting how quickly we can go from being believers who love one another, whose fellowship is based in the realities of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, to being believers who fight with one another, whose fellowship is based on if we agree with one another on particular issues. And if we look like one another and sound like one another and we all say the same thing. But if you disagree with me, you're not of me. You're not of my group. I don't hang with you. I don't like you. In fact, I'll backtalk, gossip, stab, discuss you with other people. Listen, if your rallying point is whether or not you like Trump or not, if that's the point, that actually governs the primary amount of your discussions or posts? Are you loving the brothers and sisters? If the topic of conversation that fills and, and, and completely dominates your conversations with others and your interactions on social media is a particular aspect of the virus or mask wearing or not mask wearing, etc., etc. Are you, are you loving the brothers? Or are you reserving fellowship for those that think like you and act like you and talk like you and smell like you? That's not what this passage is teaching. And I would actually suggest to you that we can do better. 
as a congregation, we can do better. Because God, who is love, dwells in us. And so what characteristics should be flowing out of us, should be governing us in all of those spheres, is the love that God has for us. That's transforming us. That's securing us and causing us to love other people. And now we're offering grace and love and kindness even to those who totally disagree with you. That's a God-like love. And you know what? When that happens, when that is happening, when you love across the aisle, as it were, you know that it's not you doing that. It's God in you that's doing that. Now, I kind of got ahead of myself, but let me quickly just kind of rearrange us to the PowerPoint here, okay? In 1 John, you remember, he's been talking about categories. In fact, he has all of us in the categories. He says you're either in light or dark, or he goes on and on about different things of that sort, right? Truth, lies, children of God, children of the devil, love, hate, you're of us, not of us, life, death, righteousness versus lawlessness. There's all sorts of comparisons and categories. And it may be that as we've gone through these last few weeks, you find yourself pigeonholed into one category. And you say, it's not the good category, right? I am lawless, or I, I think I am, a, I am not a child of God. Well, here's the good news, and that is that there can be category transfer. You can actually transfer categories, okay? In fact, there's, there's several verses that talk about category transfer, okay? For sake of time, I'm not going to go into all of those. But the idea is this, that we're passing from darkness into light, he says. The world is passing away. Darkness into light. He also says that those who have the hope of the expectation of Christ's return in them, they begin to purify themselves as he is pure. In other words, there is a process from which one person is transformed into somebody who is of the other category. And in a lot of ways, that is what we are talking about here in chapter 4, verses 13, or really verses 16 down through 21. It is the process that God uses to transform you into somebody who is a child of God and who continues to live and abide in Him. There's some of those references if you'd like to look at them. So let's, let's, let's kind of finish up reading through the verses and then I want to, I want to show you this process, okay? So once again, verse 18 is where we'll start again. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So, if we start in verse 13 with that flyover, we connect with the new birth. We talk about the new birth, right? God abides in us. He's given us of his spirit, all right? We've been born of God so that we can confess that Jesus is the son of God and he abides in us and we in him. And here's this aspect of, of the confession is true, all right? And the morality is true. It's, it's as we abide with him, we're beginning to be transformed and be made pure. And as we abide in his love for us, This is what this passage is teaching. His love casts out fear. It casts out your dread, your torment. That you'll be judged. 
So instead, it actually helps you love other people. So, so get this. You've got to make this connection. Fearful people can only think about who? Themselves, right? Fearful people only think about themselves. So if you are in constant fear, who are you constantly thinking about? You. Which means you're not loving who? Others. Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones came up with a list. I'm going to read through it really quickly. It's a list that can help you kind of think through. Are you somebody who is manifesting self-love as opposed to others-minded love? Here's the terms. You ready? I'm just going to read through them and the definitions. This is not like to go super morbidly introspective. This is just you evaluate. And if any of these jump out to you, you're like, whoa, hey, that's me. Oh, that's me. Oh, that's me. Then we have work to do. And I think all of us would agree we'll be there. Okay? Self-centeredness. It's this idea of looking at myself, watching myself, examining myself constantly, always regarding myself. Self-centeredness. Self-assertion. Asserting myself. Demanding things whenever I desire them. Self-conceit. Being quick to defend myself, but condemning others for the same thing. Self-indulgent. I indulge, I indulge myself, I'm indulgent with myself, but I prohibit others to do the things that I do, but I don't care if I do them. Self-pleasing. You always just do things that please you. If you like it, well, you do it. Self-seeking. You're always on the lookout for you. Self-pity. You're always wondering, why do people treat me this way? I haven't done anything wrong. Why does this always happen to me? Self-sensitivity or sensitiveness. You're touchy. You're easily offended. They didn't like me. They didn't praise me. They didn't didn't give me what I thought I was going to get. You're easily offended. You imagine difficulties and attacks. People are against me, seeing them where they are not there. Self-defense. You're always on the defensive, waiting for people to be unpleasant or presuming that they are unpleasant. Self-sufficiency. You depend on yourself. This is exhibited by a lack of prayer. You never pray. You don't go to the Word. Because you got it. You got this all under control. Self-sufficiency. Self-consciousness. You're always thinking people are watching you. Everybody's watching me. Everybody's looking at me. Self-righteousness. Trusting my own goodness and personal lifestyle to find acceptance before God. Self-glorying. Constantly looking for and expecting the recognition of others. Boasting about myself. Now, I don't know if any of those are manifested in your life. Chances are pieces of some, right? We all have our own tendencies and struggles. But I want you to know something, that when God's love enters into your life, he begins to transform those issues. And he begins to cast them out. Because perfect love casts out fear. So love now becomes central for the believer, not fear. And now since love is central, it begins to overflow out of my life into the life of other people. And guess what? As that happens, there's a confidence that is built. And I know that God is in me because he's transforming me. So real quickly, let's look at the reverse. Here's the insecurity cycle, okay? So my worth is connected to me, all right? So how I view myself, my my securities, all that, it's all connected to me and my performance. Or maybe it's connected to how people view me within different relationships, right? 
but I find that I stand efficient. In other words, I'm not all that. (laughs) But what does that do? It actually makes me more afraid. And I'm afraid of being rejected. So now I grow more self-defensive or self-focused. I try to preserve myself. And the cycle then continues because now I'm unable to love because I'm just focused more on myself. And so you have this vicious cycle of fear and insecurity and self-love that just repeats itself over and over again. The insecurity cycle. Some of you are caught in this cycle, by the way. You're caught there. You're trapped. You're so afraid of people. What you need is God's love. Here's the security cycle, though. My worth is actually connected to God. I abide in His undeserved love. That was demonstrated by the incarnation and by the atonement. And God's love actually secures me. I don't have to be afraid of judgment. I don't have to be afraid of torment, of any of those things. My acceptance, my security is based in the fact that God has accepted me. So even if I royally blow it up, right? I royally whiff it. I mess it up. I'm secure in God's love for me. What this does, it enables me to grow less self-focused. I don't have to protect myself. I can actually just admit when I mess up. You know what, guys? I'm so sorry I did that and that was wrong. Will you please forgive me? Good thing I'm not looking to you for my acceptance. I'm looking to God. Very few people do that. So I grow less self-focused and now I'm actually empowered to love. I can love other people. I can do it. Why? Because God, it's God's love. It's his love. I love the way John Piper says it. He, he, he says that, that we're bending grace. The idea is we're receiving grace and love, mercy from God. And what do we do? We bend it out towards other people. It's the same grace, the same love, same mercy. We just now are dispensing it. I've received forgiveness so I can forgive you. I've received love so now I can love you. Even though you don't like me. It's okay. I will still love you instead of lash out at you and get vengeance. This idea of bending grace or dispensing of God's love. So now I'm empowered to love. And guess what? There's more security. Because God's the one doing it. And it's the security cycle. So now the security cycle is actually working. All right. I'm gonna, I gotta wrap up here because we gotta, we gotta get going here. I wanna end in this way. Go to chapter one. Verse 3, that which we have seen, heard, seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So that our joy may be complete. Now, this is very, very interesting. I want to zoom back out. What's the purpose of the book? The purpose of the book is for you to know you have eternal life. You can know this based on the Holy Spirit in you, inclining your heart towards a a proper confession or profession, right? The Holy Spirit has inclined your heart to love the gospel. Do you love the gospel? Do you love his word? Do you love getting into the word and, and reading about Jesus and about your desperate need and God's gracious provision? Do you wage war on your sin, confessing and purifying yourself, trusting in Jesus to keep you from the sin and the death like we discussed last week? And do you love the brothers and sisters in Christ? If you pass those tests, guess what? There's a sense of security that is there. There's a sense of, yes, I know that I have life. I have life from God. But you know what? It doesn't just end there. 
Okay? The purpose isn't just that you'd be, I mean, it is that you'd be secure and that you would know you have eternal life, but there's even something slightly more. It's not just about you, remember? He says, I'm, we're proclaiming this to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. Can I just tell you something? There is another cycle. It's the joy and fellowship cycle. And I hinted at this when I was talking about worship when we were singing together. When believers who are secure in God's love for them are dispensing love to the other believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're around each other, and they're the basis of their conversations and their life is the gospel and Jesus. When they come together, guess what? There is there should be great joy. You know what that's like. Because you've left conversations before and thought, oh, that was such a worthless conversation. You've gone on vacations before where you came back from the vacation and you thought, we didn't even talk about God. And there was an ache in your heart and you knew it. Some of you have relationships, you've been friends with people for a really long time and they are this deep because you cannot seem to bridge. You can't cross that line into talking about God. You know when it's missing and you know when it's there. Because when you're talking with somebody and they're talking about the love of God, that how God has been securing them and transforming them, and all of a sudden it cuts to your heart, guess what? There's joy there. It happened this morning with Brian. He doesn't even know I'm going to say this. I didn't know I was going to say this either. I'm going to stand in his office and he says something to me. He says, you know what, Josh, the greatest message you'll preach is not from 11 to 11.50. It's in your day-to-day life. I was like, oh man, I need that. I really did need that. Thank you. And you know what? My heart was like, yes. There was joy in that moment. He wasn't even intending it as a rebuke, and yet it was a rebuke, and yet at the same time it was like evidence of love, and then God used it in my heart as evidence of his love for me, and I was like, yes, I agree. I'm with you on that. And there became this like moment of like joy in relating with Brian. And we had we'd hardly said hi, like from, hey, welcome back from vacation. <laughs> and there was this immediate joy in fellowship. Because you know what? That was from his heart. This was from something God's done in his life. And it's working in his heart. And it flowed into mine. That's why John says he wants you to know you have eternal life so you can be secure. You can be confident. And then, guess what happens? He gets joy and you get joy. John gets joy, and the, Ephesus, the believers in Ephesus get joy. So do you know what would bring the, the pastors here the most joy? Do you know what would bring you the most joy? Let's fellowship together around the doctrine of Jesus Christ, around fighting and waging war against sin, and, again, and, and on loving one another with God's love. That will bring tremendous joy. We're getting ready to, to observe the Lord's table, and I'll tell you what, it's pretty awesome. We get to fellowship around the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I have asked you many, many times over these few weeks that you would take 1 John and use it as a balm in the hearts of those who might be fearful, who might be struggling with whether or not they are indeed in the family of God. 
Lord, and I, I have no doubt that, that you are using this, these texts to convict, to work in the hearts of other people. Maybe for some, you're, you're drawing them to yourself. You are showing them their complete and utter lack of genuine life. Lord, if that's the case, would you draw them completely to yourself? Would you rescue them? Would you impart to them life? And Lord, those who do have life and yet are wrestling and struggling with doubts and and fears, would you take this text and begin to apply it to their heart so that they have confidence, no longer fearing judgment, no longer concerned for self, but now able to love other people? Would you do that work in us so that we might have joyful fellowship with one another? I ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.